2: for a bit of weather news now. Darren Bett is here with an extraordinary map. I can't quite get over the divide there is, is incredible, isn't it?
3: Yeah, and we're going to start in Europe, Sophie, and I'm sure a lot of people are now familiar with this map. This is the... Uh... The weather has been in the news a lot more than usual in recent weeks. Uh, temperatures in Sicily reached 46.5 degrees today. The blues are where it's cooler than normal, the reds are where it's... The heat, floods and storms have been unprecedented. They've smashed world records and caused devastation around the world.
0: Holidays turned to horror, as more of this island is going up in flames. I'm Aaron Gilchrist, tracking historic flooding on the Canadian East Coast.
3: Predicting where these events will hit and when is the job of meteorologists. The science of weather forecasting, developed over the past century, has come a long way from just informed guesswork to the extremely reliable predictions that we all use today. But global warming will make predicting the weather in the future a tougher challenge than ever before. Predicting freak weather events, like the ones the world is experiencing right now, is not easy. These types of events will only get more frequent in a warming world. So how are meteorologists gearing up? To face that enormous challenge. This is Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha. Today, how to make weather forecasts fit for the 21st century. With me today to discuss the future of weather forecasting is Rachel Dobbs, who reports on climate for The Economist. Hi, Rachel, how are you doing?
2: Hi, I'm very good. I'm in very sunny France. How are you?
3: I'm good, thank you. Now, listen, we all complain about weather forecasts in Britain. It's one of the things that we always talk about. Just give me a sense scientifically, how good are they these days?
2: They are actually extraordinary, and it is very much kind of marvel that we take for granted day to day. Anyone kind of anywhere in the world with access to the internet or even, you know, lesser access to something like a radio or newspaper can get reasonably good predictions about what the weather will do to a pretty high degree of accuracy for a couple of days ahead. And that ability is only really emerged over the last century and particularly kind of 50 years. And it relies on everything from spaceflight to telecommunications to Newtonian physics. It is an extraordinarily complicated and impressive system that we. Tends not to see when we're
3: using it. And it's all of that sort of compressed into like a number. It's going to be 15 degrees Celsius tomorrow or it's going to rain. It's incredible how all of that information is compressed into something that we use on a really routine basis. But of course, meteorologists and scientists don't sit still. They want to keep improving things, which is why you've been writing about uh, weather forecasting for The Economist this week. Can you just give us a broad outline of where scientists want to get things better and what's the direction? How much better can forecasts get than they are today?
2: So the kind of day-to-day forecasting that we're talking about, the sort of stuff that you'd get on an app, can provide a forecast that's pretty good to about five days out, although it's more accurate, closer. That is going to keep being pushed forward. It has advanced at about a day, a decade for the last 50 or so years. So one of the things that meteorologists are trying very hard to do is make it so that you can provide accurate, detailed forecasts of daily phenomena further into the future. There's also going to be other advances on different timescales. So forecasting in very short windows, like the way that rainfall might move in a city within about a kind of hour, and also further ahead, sort of bigger weather trends, like what the weather's going to do in a month or so. And on all these various axes, meteorologists are kind of trying to pursue gains over the coming years and decades.
3: It's worth sort of setting the scene a bit more about the importance of weather forecasts beyond the personal. Can you give me an outline of why weather forecasting is such an important thing for society at large, economically speaking, even?
2: So the way to really think about this is to think about how important weather is to society at large. And, you know, it's something that we make fun of people who talk about the weather, but it impacts every single thing that humans do. It changes how people move through cities. It dictates the outcome of sports matches. It can be the difference between a successful military campaign and an unsuccessful military campaign, our ability to predict the weather has an absolutely huge impact on kind of everything that people do from their personal lives to the way in which companies operate to the decisions that governments make. And beyond the sort of quotidian applications that we've just been talking about, being able to predict the weather is also fantastically important in really high stakes scenarios of life and death. Extreme weather events like hurricanes, Uh, early warning systems or the ability to accurately track where that storm is going to move and also crucially the ability to communicate that information to a large part of the population. That's the thing that is going to make the difference often of people being able to get out of the way in time. Stuff like tornadoes, which you only ever have a couple of minutes warning at most, even well-timed alerts for that can be the difference from somebody being in a safe space in their house where they are not going to be harmed or being in a place in which they might lose their life.
3: And of course, the underlying science of all of this, the technology that's required to predict the weather, is also incredibly important for our longer term predictions about how the climate itself is changing and how the Earth's environment will impact us in the future.
2: Yes, it is, and getting improvements in that kind of information is going to be very important. And actually, sort of advances in these two types of prediction are needed simultaneously because one of the things that climate change does is it increases the variability and the volatility of the weather. So, as the climate warms, we're going to need better systems of weather prediction, and then also better systems of weather prediction help us understand more acutely how the climate is actually changing and what the impacts of that will be. So increased, improved information and modelling for both of those is really important and needs to happen hand in hand.
3: Okay, Rachel, stick around because we'll be exploring all of this a little later on. First, though, Hannah Fisher, one of our producers, went to visit the Meteorological Department at the University of Reading, just outside London. The scientists there work closely with Britain's Met Office, which is the country's national weather service. Hannah wanted to find out how weather forecasts are made so she was shown around by Andrew Charlton Perez, the University's Head of Mathematical, Physical and Computational Sciences.
4: So we've come into a field on the University of Reading campus mm-hmm. and it's a grassy field. There's these paths going up and down it and they go past what looks like a ladder <laughs> <laughs> with with lots of instruments, kind of spaced at equal intervals throughout. And I can see, is that a Stevenson screen and some wind vanes? I mean, there's so many instruments here and it's literally on campus. Is this, what is this? Is this am i seeing where the data being collected
1: you're seeing it being collected right now so this is our atmospheric observatory and this is a facility that we use for research for teaching and it also has a standard met office synoptic station which is automatically recording temperature and precipitation and that's the data which is being fed back to the Met Office, and then we'll form part of the data that goes into the model to make the forecast. So you're absolutely right, we do have a Stevenson screen, so it's kind of a white box, which is uh, one and a half metres above the ground, and it has slats in it. Inside this box, there are two thermometers, and these thermometers, is a maximum thermometer, a standard thermometer, and a, a thermometer which is surrounded by a wick, by something that's wet all the time, so we can measure how much evaporation... We'll change the temperature and that tells us something about how much moisture there is in the in the atmosphere and those thermometers are surrounded by this white box with slats in it so the thermometers are not being affected by the direct solar radiation in the same way that your you know your, your thermometer in your car is perhaps not a great measurement because the um, it's over a warm surface and there's lots of radiation but then it's got slats in it so that the box the air in the box is not heating up what we're hoping is that the air is blowing through and so we're really getting a sense of what the temperature of the air itself is rather than any of those other contributing factors let me just shut this uh, shut this screen otherwise the observer will be cross with me for interfering with the measurements we have just a range of different instruments so the part of the site that you were talking about with the ladder that's our automatic logging set
4: so that just sends the data automatically yeah, to yeah
1: the- to a computer in the in the shed, <laughs> which is at the, at the bottom of the observatory there, and then back to our department. And then the Met Office station is the screen, which is over there, which is sending that data back to Exeter, to the Met Office headquarters. If we walk back up here, we've got anemometers, so instruments that are measuring wind speed at different heights from the ground. So we would normally expect it to be a kind of a logarithmic profile from the ground, typically on most days, so it changes quite quickly... When, when you get to the top of the mast. And then we have some more high-tech equipment. So for example, this white box here is a cloud lidar. So that's sending uh, a laser pulse and measuring how long it takes for the pulse to be reflected back down to the ground.
4: Wow, just from that kind of very...
1: Yeah, so don't, don't lean over uh, it because no there looking... is a laser. <laughs> <No> <laughs> you I'm can't looking see white it. <laughs> box, wow. But, but yeah, this is a lidar, which is um, sending pulses of light up into the sky.
4: What is a weather forecast?
1: So a weather forecast is produced by taking all of the observations that we have of the state of the atmosphere right now, and actually even more than the atmosphere, so the state of the land surface, the state of the ocean, and then using our knowledge of the physics of how the atmospheric fluid moves around to extrapolate into the future about where the fluid will be in a day or a week or a month's time, and then what the weather will be like based on where the hot and cold air is and where the moist air or where the rain is at that time.
4: And, I mean, presumably the technology we have now (laughs) is much more advanced than when the first weather forecast started. What was the first weather forecast like (laughs) versus now?
1: (laughs) Sure. So there have been kind of two key advances in the last 50 or 60 years in terms of how we produce weather forecasts. The first of those advances was moving to something called numerical weather predictions. So for about 100 years or so, we've known the physical equations that underlie how the atmospheric fluid moves around. So they derive from Newton's laws. They derive from things that we know are conserved, so conservation of mass. They derive from thermodynamics and laws of thermodynamics. But we didn't have the means... To extrapolate using those equations, because although they're quite simple equations, they're quite hard to solve. We don't have an exact solution for those equations. And so the key development in numerical weather prediction was to find ways to approximate those equations on a very large computer, on a supercomputer. And then the second key innovation has really come around in probably the last 30 years or so, which is to think about the importance of chaos in weather predictions. What that really means is any small uncertainty you have in the initial conditions and your estimate of what the atmosphere looks like right now can grow into a big difference in what, what might happen in the future. And so, of course, we will never know precisely exactly what the state of the atmosphere is. And so meteorological science has developed techniques called ensemble forecasting techniques. So rather than making one weather forecast, we might make 50 weather forecasts or 100 weather forecasts Well, we have slight variations in the initial conditions. And by making those forecasts all together, you know, it's been shown that taking the average of those forecasts in the future is better than any single forecast on its own.
4: You know, when we open our phones and we check our weather app and and we see a forecast, that's actually an average of lots of different forecasts for the most likely?
1: It can be, or it, it can be exactly in terms of which particular property we're trying to forecast. So, for example, if you think about a probability of precipitation when it says there's a 30% chance of, of rain, that will be typically from an ensemble, and it will say, you know, three out of ten of the forecasts that we made predict that there are going to be rainfall for this location at this particular time. It's not quite as simple as I presented it there because there is some kind of post-processing. But then you're right. So for things like pressure or temperature, we might choose to actually pick the average of all those forecasts as being the most likely outcome or the most skillful outcome measured over many, many, many cases where we've made forecasts and seen what's actually happened.
4: And as you go through, you know, a weather forecast every day and you can kind of check how it compares to the weather outside, does that slowly make models better over time is that the idea
1: that's the idea so weather forecasting centers will have big teams that are looking at how good the forecast was and you know making changes to those models so even though we have very large supercomputers doing these calculations some of the largest supercomputers in the world there will be a limit in in resolution both in time and space as to how we can represent the the atmosphere. So it's sort of analogous to your TV. You know, we've all had TVs that have gone up in resolution from, you know, HD to 4K or whatever the the most recent one is. So we get smaller and smaller pixels, if you like, that are representing the atmosphere and the Earth system. But of course, we can never represent all the processes that determine our weather because they're really interesting over sort of huge scales, from planetary scales, all the way down to the, the scale of individual raindrops. And then we have lots of other processes that we have to approximate. We have to think about clever ways that we can represent those kind of aggregated effects on the scale that we're trying to represent. And actually much of the improvement in forecasting over the last 10 years or so has come through more observations and better use of them, improved data assimilation techniques. And that, that's been kind of shown to have quite a big impact on, at least on our short range weather forecasts, about out to three or five days or so.
4: Could you maybe just explain the difference between kind of a short-range forecast and a longer-range forecast?
1: So we tend to think more now of a kind of a series of forecasts, a kind of seamless progression between forecasting on different timescales and actually often we would use the same modelling tools or very similar modelling tools to make forecasts all the way from a few hours ahead all the way actually out to, to climate predictions, so predictions out to 100 years ahead or even beyond. So, if we're thinking about forecasting a season ahead, so typically forecasts are made, say, on the 1st of November for the winter for the Northern Hemisphere, there we really need to think about particularly the ocean, that's where lots of the memory lies, or the ice or other processes that have these really long time scales. When we make a forecast for three days or five days ahead, what we're really relying on most there is knowing what the state of the atmosphere is right now, the initial state. And then we can extrapolate from that initial state to what's going to happen in the future. If we think about going right the way to the other end of that continuum, if we go to the climate forecast, if I'm seeking to make a, a projection or a prediction of what will happen in 2050, obviously the amount of information I get from knowing what the state is today is almost irrelevant. But what I really care about is how carbon dioxide or aerosols or other climate forcings are going to change on that timescale. And those are kind of boundary. Forcing,s you can think about a kind of sliding scale. I suppose where the initial conditions are more important on those kind of subseasonal timescales, the boundary conditions starting to become important.
4: This time last year, the UK was experiencing its hottest temperature ever. How does something like that impact both the short term and the long term forecast? Because presumably, with a short term forecast, that anomaly, if it is an anomaly, can be a bit of an outlier in the data but then from a climate perspective presumably that's quite interesting to find out the frequency of those anomalies.
1: One of the really interesting developments in weather forecasting is the the possibility of using generative AI to make some of these forecasts and there are certainly some people in our community who are advocating that that would be a real revolution one concern that, that some people have is the generative AI technologies. They have to somewhat be based on what happened in the past. That's how they work. When we have these unprecedented events, the extent to which the AI technology is able to produce those accurately is an interesting question that people are actively looking at. If we're then thinking about the far future, about the frequency of these extremes. Of course that's really important information for governments, for uh, businesses to plan on, right? And there's huge uncertainty about that, both in how we model them and can we produce them in our models? And that's that's a live and interesting question.
4: What's the main challenge you know in your in your work every day? What's the kind of big headache?
1: <laughs> I think fundamentally the challenge for weather forecasting is About these extreme events, you know, our climate predictions have have shown and have been shown to be right that these extreme events are going to keep on happening. They're going to be more frequent. They're going to have larger impacts on our societies. I mean, I think what's really interesting about this summer is it's probably the first summer where most people have appreciated that these extreme events are going to happen in multiple places at the same time. And so they are real kind of global challenges And so the challenge for weather forecasters is to be able to meet that global challenge. Can we produce the early warning systems that everyone needs?
3: Okay. so Rachel, we heard there about how weather forecasting works today, which basically involves taking lots of data from satellites and ships and all sorts of sensors around the world, all about the atmosphere, breaking the world up into very small Grids, and in each grid, you try and work out how the air and water is moving, and then predict in the next iteration how it's going to move maybe tomorrow or the day after. And there's lots of uncertainties, of course. The weather is a chaotic system, it's very hard to predict sometimes, but you can find patterns. And as computing power gets better, Uh, As simulations get better, we get better and better at predicting longer term things and also finer features of that. So that's all going to keep getting better in that sort of traditional numerical weather forecasting way. But We also heard about the use of AI. Now, of course, no topic in science is immune from talking about AI. So tell me how AI is going to help the sort of traditional numerical weather forecasting system.
2: So AI, as is sort of widely talked about, is fantastically good at spotting patterns in wide bits of data. The applications for weather forecasting are that, you know, you are dealing with huge, huge swathes of data. And also sometimes you are dealing with data or phenomena that we don't actually understand the kind of underlying physical mechanism or the underlying physical mechanism is too complicated to be put into models. So there are various ways that AI systems can start to help with that. So For the big numerical models, AI is already being used early on to help sort the data from the widely disparate observations of the atmosphere into a form of variables that can be put into the kind of grid that is then used. But there are also increasingly applications for AI that sort of fill in or augment gaps that numerical weather prediction can't really do or finds really difficult. One of the problems with numerical forecasting is that because of chaos in the system you cannot get sort of certain predictions after a certain point in advance one of the things that ai is quite good at doing is kind of just recognizing those really long-term relationships between certain phenomena which means that you can start to make predictions even without the kind of underlying modeling and one of the companies that is doing this particularly on a kind of seasonal time scale is salient and i actually spoke to their chief scientist sam levang about this
0: We do rely heavily on machine learning models for our forecasts. And the goal of an ML system is to learn exactly the relevant information from a set of inputs to predict what that future state is going to be. The challenge when you attempt to do seasonal forecasting is that the set of relevant input data becomes smaller and smaller, the further out you go. And that's because most of the atmospheric state that traditionally describes weather completely devolves into chaos in these timescales. So there's just not much predictability left. And what is left are very particular components of the climate system. With an ML approach, you're not constrained by having to solve physics. So we can directly target these most important parts of the system on the seasonal timescale. We can tweak the model by adding and removing components. And you end up with something that's much leaner and can have better accuracy because we've essentially reduced the signal to noise ratio of the input data and the model itself and the convenient side effect also is that ai models are much more efficient to run computationally so we can experiment faster and also produce operational forecasts much faster
2: obviously this will greatly depend on the area that you're looking at and the time scale for a regional area what kind of inputs would you be looking for and what kind of inputs would you be trying to train your algorithm on
0: So we weight most of our models heavily towards ocean and land data. A great example of a standard seasonal sort of pattern that influences weather around the world is El Nido, this warm or cold patch of ocean temperature in the tropical Pacific. And this may be the one thing in the whole system that actually has some predictive value for, say, temperature in the southwestern United States. And what an ML system could do is really key in on that particular pattern that has demonstrated predictive power on past data and make the forecast tuned in to just that relevant information. Whereas a physics-based model is kind of throwing everything at this problem and there's just so much chaos going on that it's it's not as focused.
2: And um, what data are you using to train the algorithms on where does it come from and sort of to what extent has it already been assimilated by kind of numerical weather prediction purposes.
0: The reality is that private companies that do ML-based forecasting are still fairly dependent on the government data sets that are cleaned up and pre-processed.
2: Okay. Given that models are trained on big historical data sets, that is obviously data that has been collected and assimilated in a climate that exists in a certain state, do you see any problems in trying to make predictions based on past behavior rather than predictions based on sort of, you know, physical evolution that are based on a climate that is increasingly not the climate that we may be living in?
0: Yes and no. Uh, It's true that AI is not very good at predicting truly out-of-sample data. You know, if you've never showed a system a relevant example, it's a big ask to expect it to be able to accurately predict the outcome. This is a a big problem, I think, in applying AI to stuff like 50 to 100-year climate projections, because we just don't have any data to train the models for this. But for weather, days, weeks, months ahead, it turns out that climate is changing gradually enough that there are usually at least some relevant examples in recent history. They may not be Exactly the same, but they're close enough that the system can start to pick up on these trends pretty quickly. And so, another nice feature about ML AI systems is it's pretty easy to weight the training process towards certain examples. You know, in this case, we're more interested in recent extreme heat waves or floods. These are things that are happening more quickly. We can try to make the model key in on these and, and nudge it towards those more relevant examples. We think.
2: Traditionally, the business of turning weather data, so observations or what have you, into weather information, so predictions and stuff you can actually use, has been the domain of large meteorological agencies, often government funded. Part of the reason we're having this conversation is that that is shifting.
0: Exactly. So I think probably the most surprising thing is that no one really expected pure AI models to be keeping up with numerical weather prediction this quickly. So the idea that small private companies can be running their own models that outperform these massive supercomputer models is surprising and pretty cool. And that will take time to build trust in these systems among different users, but they'll prove themselves as, as they operate in real time. And if the accuracy is better, that's all that really matters, I think.
2: That's really great. Thank you so much for speaking to us, Sam.
0: Thanks, Rachel.
3: That was really interesting. Thanks, Rachel. Of course, these methods are still new. I just wonder where you think they're going to be used in place of traditional numerical weather forecasting and where they're not.
2: So it's something that I think is important to remember is that these methods are not doing the exact same thing as numerical weather prediction. They are not creating a model of the atmosphere and then evolving it forward in time. What they are doing, very broadly, is pulling out data patterns and They can do that incredibly quickly. It's much less resource intensive. So the ways in which this is being applied is as a kind of augment to the models that we already have. For example, one of the things that is traditionally quite hard for numerical weather prediction is now casting. So very short term predictions, particularly in a small area of stuff like precipitation, because it takes the models too long to run. Something where AI or machine learning is very useful in that respect is that it is much better at kind of extrapolating where, for example, a pattern of precipitation might move. Google's DeepMind with the Met Office did a project in which they were looking at the way that radar bounces off raindrops, which is also how numerical weather prediction tries to do this kind of forecasting. But they were much better at working out This is happening here, which suggests that it's going to happen 50 metres to the right in a minute's time or whatever. So that's the kind of thing in which this is really useful and starts to fill in other gaps.
3: Now, these innovations that you're talking about seem to be happening in companies. And I just wonder, what's the benefit of having private companies doing this sort of weather forecasting, given that traditional weather forecasting has really been the domain of like huge government funded or academic enterprises?
2: even though the vast majority of the models and the information has been produced by big academic or government institutions. They have to produce broadly the information that is most useful to the largest number of people. And there has always been demand for something that is more specialised than they can provide. So for at least a decade now, you've had private weather companies who take the output of those models and try and twist the data or present it in such a way that it is more beneficial to the user. So, you know, if you have a farmer who just really specifically cares about when to plant his crops and doesn't care about the much broader weather forecast that the whole population Is going to get. The newer innovations, particularly the ones being driven by technological advances from AI, do tend to be coming from private companies. So, for example, we spoke earlier about Salient, which does kind of longer seasonal predictions. They provide forecasts for companies like Zurich Insurance, who wants to have a rough idea of what the dramatic weather might be in a couple of months' time, because obviously that has big impact on the payouts that they're going to have to make or what their clients are going to have to do. And it's not possible via a normal numerical weather model to say... In a, two months' time, there's going to be a storm system here. But what you can do using AI is be like, hmm, these patterns suggest that this might happen. So it's not the same kind of forecast, but that is information that is valuable to a client. I just wonder on the flip side of it, are there disadvantages
3: to this as well? You know, does it have any sort of costs for the larger met offices or anything? Or is it all good that we have lots and lots of different types of technologies around?
2: One of the fears has always been that as private companies get into this space, particularly because they often or almost always use the output of big governmental models, which they are then selling, like does that then start to fracture a system which operates on a public good principle? With the AI systems that we are seeing now, which are actually finding ways to kind of add to the data that a normal model would put out, I think that they are pretty much broadly beneficial. Often what that does is it means that you can provide certain information much, much cheaper to the end client, which is often very helpful. Also, it's worth noting that a lot of poor countries who are the ones most impacted by variable and extreme weather, which is also only going to get worse, often their own meteorological agencies do not have the resources to produce the kind of really finely grained forecasts. So the ability for useful information to be produced from data even if it's not being done in a kind of full modeling way is very beneficial and i think that's kind of pretty much broadly a positive
3: okay thank you rachel we'll be back with you in just a moment where we'll discuss the future of how we can even more precisely predict the weather
4: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
3: Today on Babbage, we're exploring how to make weather prediction better. Now, all of the things we've talked about today, numerical weather forecasting, all the data that's collected around the world, is processed in enormous data centres that allow us to get the weather forecasts we have already. Rachel Dobbs went to see one of these data centres in action. She went to Bologna to look at the nerve centre for the European Centre for Medium-Range Weather Forecasts.
1: So we are inside the data centre of ICMWF. So this was an old tobacco manufacturer which has been refurbished by the Italian government. and The,
0: the
2: European Centre for Medium-Range Weather Forecasting is an intergovernmental organization that is considered to be kind of the world leader in producing medium term forecasts so out to about 10 or 15 days i went to see where they do most of their work which is in an old tobacco factory in bologna it's huge it's amazing it's an amazing yes. building each, each of the body, um, you get an extraordinary sense of the scale and complexity of the process that it actually takes to predict the weather via these numerical models. It will be a bit noisy too. We're now walking
1: into the data hall. This is where we do the, the calculation or the simulation of our model.
2: Every day, into this centre in Bologna pour 800 million observations of the atmosphere. Those then all have to be cleaned and checked and assimilated into a way which means that they can actually be used as a mathematical representation of the atmosphere. The
1: data assimilation process is the process which allows us to initiate the model. Yes. So it's what will give us the image of the atmosphere to run the, hmm. uh, to, to run the forecast. You
2: and then or... they have multiple model runs happening every single day at different types of resolution you have multiple runs happening at the same time with sort of slight variations to try and account for uncertainty. This looks so much like a futuristic version of the Enigma machine. Yeah. <laughs> what does Manfold leak mean? Well. This you is say, for well. That's for power. Yes. My temptation to press a button is enormous. No. I'm not going to do it. The power that it takes is phenomenal. The computing that it takes is phenomenal. You know, you have rooms full of supercomputers the degree of complexity within this machinery, within this kind of factory that is what really produces the weather forecasts that everybody uses, is just extraordinary.
3: Rachel, that was fascinating. Can you tell me what it was like to be in that centre?
2: It was just completely awe-inspiring. I've been thinking about the mathematics and the science behind numerical weather prediction for a while, and I understand how complicated it is. But To see the amount of variables and the amount of machinery and all the sort of hugely interconnected parts that are necessary to keep it running was really amazing. And it really sort of hammered home to me how extraordinary this enterprise is and how extraordinary actually the forecasting that we currently have is, let alone the sort of more advanced forecasting to come. Okay,
3: so it sounds already like a very sophisticated, very complex, highly engineered enterprise. But we're talking about the future now and i just wonder how can this very complex enterprise be made even more accurate how can these new technologies like machine learning be integrated into what's going on already i mean it seems like every inch you get further in making these things better is going to be very very difficult and very hard one
2: yes and you know there are a couple of technological advances that are really in play here one is advances in computing, because the speed that supercomputers can work at is incredibly critical for being able to reduce the resolution of weather models, which is about increasing the accuracy. We're starting to see the emergence of XSL computers, which can actually start doing this kind of stuff and start running global models at very fine resolutions. And there is a movement towards... Running incredibly finely grained, incredibly intensive models that are simultaneously looking at both the weather and the climate and AI methods will a streamline the process of getting the data that is needed for that, but they will also be the thing that kind of helps users actually access and use that data in a way that is helpful.
3: Okay, so there's going to be some blending of these technologies, which I'm sure will present its own challenges and problems. But point me towards the vision. What does it look like to be forecasting the weather when these systems are integrated, maybe in, you know, several years time?
2: Yeah, so the direction of travel and the vision is moving towards these systems that are kind of actually visualising the whole Earth, almost as it is digitally, they're often referred to as digital twins. There are a couple of these projects that are already in play. Uh, The European Commission has a project called Destination Earth, which, using various supercomputers and using very advanced models, is meant to be running very, very finely grained simulations of all the various processes that make up the planet. So that is atmospheric stuff, but it's also the ocean and land and hydrology and things like that. And the point is that with the help of AI those will be running and then can also be used to ask or simulate loads of different types of questions. So you can say, what will the impact of these kind of temperatures be on fish stocks or migration patterns across Europe, that kind of thing. So it's, you are trying to create a tool that can A, predict what's gonna happen in the future, but also let people ask questions and think about that in a way which will hopefully help them make decisions. And beyond that, there are even more ambitious proposals coming down the pipe, one of which is for a sort of federated worldwide system of earth virtualization engines that can be used by a greater number of people and can create even greater data and information outputs, which was recently put forward at a summit in Berlin and will be proposed more formally at the United Nations Climate Summit in November this year. And that is a collaboration between lots of different meteorological agencies, but also companies like nvidia which has also been over the last couple of years experimenting with its own digital simulations of earth
3: okay so it looks like there's lots of different avenues to improve weather models and make them even more interactive and and useful to people but i wonder you know how much better can they get in the grand scheme of things the atmosphere of the earth is not an easy thing to model i just wonder is there a limit to how good weather predictions can get
2: Yes, absolutely. And as with anything in which you are using a model to try and understand something about reality, the model can never be as detailed as reality. Otherwise, there is no point having a model. The kind of physical systems that govern the planet, there's a certain amount of chaos built in, there is a limit to what it is possible to know in advance. And it is always worth reminding that anything that we think we do know in advance comes with quite a wide range of uncertainty. And that has to be thought about carefully. But... As we've discussed, there are ways to improve the accuracy and availability of this kind of information that can and will make a sort of demonstrable difference to businesses and governments and also individuals in loads of different parts of the world.
3: And just to wind up, we've discussed how climate change is going to make weather events more extreme. But predicting these sorts of extreme weather events has proved problematic sometimes today. Are we going to be able to use these futuristic weather forecasting models to do better in terms of predicting the extremes that climate change will bring?
2: So the hope is, yes, but as you've touched on there, there are always problems with predicting extremes because you are using past information as a way of thinking about the future and there are various initiatives underway to try and work out better ways in which we can try and predict the extreme distributions that lead to very dramatic events even based on the sort of less extreme information that we have but this kind of prediction is difficult there will be advances but you know that is one of the areas that people are having to think about quite carefully and given that We know we're going to see more extremes. We don't know what those extremes necessarily are going to be. It may not be the case that very far ahead of time, very quickly, we are able to say this disaster is going to happen. What then becomes very, very important is with the predictions that we are able to make on those events, it's also working out ways to communicate early warning systems to the people that those will affect. So both need to happen simultaneously. One is a harder science. One is more of a kind of practical consideration, but it is very important.
3: Okay, Rachel, that's a good place to end. Thank you very much for all of that. Now, listeners can read all of Rachel's reporting in the forthcoming edition of The Economist. But Rachel, before I let you go, can you tell me anything else that you've been reading The Economist that uh, you'd recommend?
2: Well, I mean, I think for published listeners who are interested in science and technology, the Technology Quarterly that came out last week, which is about fertility technologies, is absolutely fascinating. So I would really highly recommend that. For readers who are also interested in climate and weather and the very dramatic weather that we've been seeing over the last couple of months. I would point them towards our recent coverage of that. So how cities are coping with extreme heat, what happens when you have multiple extreme weather events happening simultaneously. A lot of our recent coverage on that, I think listeners of Babbage will find very interesting.
3: Okay, that's a good selection of very wide-ranging science and tech. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for bringing the Story us today.
2: Thanks for having me, Alec.
3: Our thanks to Andrew Charlton-Perez, Sam LeVang and all of the other researchers that Rachel and Hannah spoke to in Reading and Bologna. I'm now off on my summer holidays for the next few weeks, but you'll be in safe hands. I've trained a large language model to take my place. Actually, no. Next week, you've got the wonderful Ken Kukia. He'll take my place. Babbage this week was produced by Jason Hoskin and Hannah Fisher, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Chow, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Data is the lifeblood of business and society. Want to get better with it? Register now for Economist Education's new two-week course, Data Storytelling and Visualisation, Starting on July 31st, designed by The Economist journalists, you'll learn how to create compelling infographics, reveal hidden insights, and to persuade others. And as an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 15% off with the code DATA. So sign up now at economist.com slash datacourse.